Hi, this is Mary, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is your Sunday sermon. I'm so excited to be with you today. It is Sunday, the 18th of September, and welcome to part five of our sermon series called God Goes to War. Today's sermon is called Saint Nate Got No Teeth, and we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. Now, last week, I talked about Revelation 6, and the main thrust was the wrath of God, God's judgment on those who've persecuted and killed his people. Today, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to chapter 12. Now, I believe that understanding chapter 12 all depends on what criteria you use to establish when the prophecy in this chapter will or has taken place. But once you know when this prophecy is taking place, you can learn a powerful message about God's faithfulness. I'll tell you more in a moment, but before I do, join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing time when we can come together again and listen to your word, to learn from it, to open the word, to read for ourselves what you're having to say. Help us to process all this imagery, but to realize, Lord, what is the real message, this powerful message in chapter 12, which is about your faithfulness. We look forward to learning more in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you dislike daylight savings time? Well, you're not alone, and you're in good company, as many Americans don't like it either. Back in the early 1800s, America had thousands of time zones. Back then, every city set their clocks based on when the sun was at high noon. One city might have their clock set at 12 noon, while several miles away, another city may say the time was 12.08 or 12.44. Now, that wasn't much of a problem until the railroads came along. In 1869, the U.S. completed the first transcontinental railroad line connecting from coast to coast but they soon had a headache with scheduling because of the multitude of time zones. Every city had its own personal time zone, if you will, and the railroad never knew what time it was from city to city, so it had a lot of confusion, as you might imagine. So on November 18, 1883, the railroad companies divided the nation into four time zones and basically forced all the local cities to set their clocks by railroad time. That way, everybody knew exactly what time it was and no one had to guess as to when the next train was going to arrive. The railroads learned firsthand how impractical it can be for people to have their own time zones. Now, when it comes to reading the book of Revelation, there's a multitude of different ways on what the book is saying. And many of those views depend upon folks using their own time zones, if you will. In fact, prophetic teachers are so committed to their own personal time zone on prophecy that they have literally stopped the Bible clock in order to make Scripture fit their theology. Now consider, for example, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 is perhaps one of the most powerful and impressive prophecies in the Old Testament. It covers a prophetic period of 490 years in the Old Testament era, and it accurately depicts the date the temple was rebuilt, and it also accurately gave the date when Jesus' earthly ministry began. And it's great stuff. But in my study for this, I recently came across a chart that talked about this prophecy period. And on that chart was a section that was titled Time Gap. 
and it was also called the Church Age. Now, what is all this about a time gap? What the creators of this chart are saying is that God stopped the biblical clock right here about the beginning of the final week of the prophecy, and that God wouldn't turn the clock back on until the end of time. You might have seen a representation of this in another source. Now, the end of time is what these creators believe Revelation, including chapter 12, is describing. But why? Why would they think God would stop the clock? I mean, Daniel 9 doesn't even hint that there would be a time gap. So why then? Because their theology dictates that there's no other way to make the prophecy in Daniel make sense. You see, essentially, their theology is that God had an original plan for the prophecy. They maintain that his plan was that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the Jews would flock all together to his banner and all Israel would be saved. But that didn't happen. They say that somehow God did not foresee that the majority of the Jews would reject Christ, and so he fell back to plan B, which was including the Gentiles in salvation. This is what this chart and others like it call the church age. And in his study Bible, Schofield called it the great parenthesis. But these prophetic teachers teach that at the end of time, God will fix that oversight by saving all of the physical Jews. In other words, God will get back to plan A. Folks, this is the foundation of most prophetic teaching in America today. Many people used to and still do think like this, but they have to realize it is, listen to me, it is completely unbiblical. For instance, there's nothing in Daniel's prophecy that justifies their interpretation. You have to impose a time gap where no one was indicated. And secondly, their time gap, or the great parenthesis, presumes that God was caught by surprise here. I don't know about you, but my God is never caught by surprise. Amen? The Gentiles' inclusion in the church was not some mistake. It's not some plan B. It's exactly what God had planned all along. Piggybacking on this gap theology is the national sport of predicting when Jesus will come back. Edgar C. Weisenhut wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back. He did that back in 1988. He mailed 300,000 free copies to pastors across America and sold 4.5 million copies. Now, of course, his prediction didn't come to pass. Undaunted, Wisenot wrote several other books with predictions for various dates in 1989, 1993, and 1994. None of them sold well at all. Jesus said in Matthew 24:36, about that day or hour, talking about his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so who knows when Jesus is coming back? Say it with me. God, the Father. That's what you think the answer is, right? But there are prophetic teachers out there who will tell you they know. And as I mentioned last week, David Mead made one of the most bizarre predictions that had to do with Revelation 12. Now, there's a chart that I found that Mead made that was in association with this sermon last week. And what the chart shows is the constellations of Virgo and Leo. Revelation 12 speaks of a sign in heaven of a woman, Virgo, and Jesus as the line of Judah, Leo. Now, Mead says that these two constellations would be in conjunction for the first time in 7,000 years, and this is an indication that Jesus would return to rapture Christians. Like I told you last week, you can't make this stuff up. Please understand, I'm not questioning Mead's salvation, but I am questioning his thinking because, frankly, this is just insanity. The only way you can arrive at this kind of thinking is if you ignore what Revelation 12 actually says. 
Revelation 12 is very clear about when this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, let's look at Revelation 12:10. It is literally God's clock that tells us what time zone we're in. Notice what it says. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. Now, if you could figure out when the salvation, power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ would or did come, then you'd be able to piece together the rest of the prophecy. Well, folks, you're in luck. Scripture tells us these things have already come. Now, let's take them one step at a time. Has salvation come? Yes. Paul tells the Christians in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.2, For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And again, he writes in Ephesians 1.13, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. Folks, salvation exists right now. You received it when you became a Christian. Salvation has come. Say that with me. Salvation has come. Question, has power come? Absolutely, yes. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the, here it is, power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The power of God exists right now, and that power exists to bring us salvation. Question, has the kingdom come? Again, yes. Colossians 1.13 tells us, for he has rescued us, meaning God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, talking about the present church, Paul wrote, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. We are in the kingdom right now, and that kingdom gives us God's power and his salvation. And how about Christ's authority? Has it come? Absolutely yes. Ephesians 1, 19 through 22 says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Jesus has authority right now. Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, and now he has authority over all things. So the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And that means that the prophecy of Revelation 12 has already taken place. So let's look at the prophecy. First, we have a woman who is about to give birth to a male child. Let's read Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then in verse 5, she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. First, who's this man-child? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is caught up to God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and has everything under his feet. 
he rules with an iron rod. But who's the woman? Remember, this is a sign or a symbol. It's not a real person. This is not meant to be taken literally. It's symbolic. In other words, if it's not Mary, then who is it? Notice this woman in Revelation 12 not only gives birth to Jesus, but she is the mother of all Christians. Revelation 12:17 says, And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Who could this woman be? Well, I think we can find the answer in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 to 26. Turn there with me. It reads, The scripture says that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife, Hagar, was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife, Sarah, was born of God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is like the Mount Sinai of Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but essentially, that is what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jerusalem represents God's kingdom. Before Jesus came, physical Jerusalem was the center of God's old covenant. It was also the center of God's prophecy about the coming Messiah. That's why the wise men came looking for the newborn king, where? In Jerusalem. But what Paul is telling us in Galatians 4 is this. After Jesus died and rose from the grave, Jerusalem changed. Physical Jerusalem was no longer the center of God's plans. Heavenly Jerusalem was now God's major focus. And that heavenly Jerusalem is called our mother. It's the church. We are children of God through the church and the church's headquarters. The Jerusalem above is located in heaven. Now check Revelation 21 verse 2 where the heavenly Jerusalem is referred to as the bride, a term understood to refer to the church. Well, that brings us to the last character in this vision, the dragon. Who's the dragon? Revelation 12:9 tells us he is called the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. According to this vision, Satan knew Jesus was coming and he camped out in front of the woman. Look at verse 4b, which says he stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Did Satan actually do that? Oh, yes, he did. There were a couple of times when Christ was born and several times during his ministry that Satan tried every trick he had to take Jesus out. He tried killing him, deceiving him, even discrediting him, but nothing worked. When all else failed, Satan unleashed his ultimate plan. He arranged to have Jesus crucified. Of course, what Satan didn't know was that that was part of God's plan all along. It was in the crucifixion of Christ that sealed Satan's doom. Hebrews 2.14 says, Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Folks, Jesus died for our sins and broke the back of Satan's power over us. Amen? However, once Satan realized that Jesus had not stayed in the grave, but had risen from the dead and ascended on high, he apparently decided he could take heaven by force. But he failed. Look at Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. It tells us, Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. 
This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Satan was defeated in heaven, and he fell from heaven. He was thrown down to earth, and he decided to turn his rage on us. He wages war against us because we have obeyed God's commands, and we have held to the testimony of Jesus. Now, why tell us this story? Why tell us what happened to Satan? Why tell us how he planned to destroy Jesus, and now he has plans for us? Well, a couple of things come to mind. The first is, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You've probably heard that statement before. We need to know that Satan is real and he's a dangerous enemy. The story here in Revelation 12 tells us about what motivates Satan, which is simply, he's out to get you. He hates you. He wants to see you gone. He wants to see you destitute. He wants to see you dead in your faith, maybe even physically dead. This is real stuff, folks. 1 Peter 5.8 says it this way, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's looking to take you out. So be aware, be alert, be self-controlled. Satan doesn't like you because he doesn't like Jesus. So don't be surprised when he comes knocking at your door. In fact, when he does, just let Jesus answer. But there's something else God wants us to see here. Satan is a dangerous enemy, but he's always operated at a disadvantage. Revelation 12:4 tells us his, Satan's, tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. Most scholars believe that the stars refer to the fallen angels who follow Satan in rebellion. You know what that means? It means that Satan is outnumbered two to one. And even if he were not outnumbered, he was never a match for God. But now he's been thrown down from heaven, and he's coming after us, and we are no match for Satan. It doesn't matter how well you know the Bible, Satan knows it better. It doesn't matter how strong you are, Satan is stronger. It doesn't matter how clever you are, yeah, he's cleverer. And there's one thing we have that he can't deal with. There's one set of weapons that will stop him in his tracks. And as Revelation 12:11 says, And they have defeated him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Our weapons of choice against our enemy are these, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, and our testimony. These weapons will bring Satan down. They will overcome him. Why? Because the scripture says so. Let me wrap this up for you today. A writer told of watching a wildcat in a zoo. He said, as I stood there, an attendant entered the cage through the door on the opposite side. He had nothing in his hands but a broom. Carefully closing the door, he proceeded to sweep the floor of the cage. The worker had no weapon to ward off an attack by the beast. In fact, when he got to the corner of the cage where the wild cat was lying, he poked the animal with the broom. The wild cat hissed at him and then lay down in another corner of the enclosure. The writer remarked to the attendant, You certainly are a brave man. No, I ain't brave, he replied. Well, then the cat must be tame. No, he ain't tame. Well, if you aren't brave and the wildcat isn't tame, then I can't understand why he doesn't attack you. The man just chuckled. Mister, he's old and he ain't got no teeth. Well, folks, that's the message of Revelation 12. Yes, Satan is dangerous. He is our enemy. Yes, he's not tame. And yes, he's out to get you. But because of the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony, he ain't got no teeth. And for that and all things to God be the glory. 
and all his people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.